All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ehler, for the introduction. Uh, so for those who don't know me by now, my name is Zola. I'm one of the second year infectious disease fellows here at the University of South Florida. And uh, today my talk is going to be on the great mimics of infectious diseases, a false tale of fevers and rashes. And, uh, you know, you know, infectious disease mimics, it's pretty, they're pretty extensive. Um, so we're only going to focus on a couple of conditions that I think we should all um, have some knowledge about and things that we can encounter in real life as well as on our board exams. So let me just advance to the next slide. Okay, so just some food for thought. Uh, so how many times have you been asked to see a patient for fever or rash, but said, this really does not seem infectious? So you cannot quite put a hand on what is going on. So you're like Spider-Man over there on the bed, just pondering on what exactly is going on with your patient. So today's objectives, we're going to discuss some conditions that are easily confused with infectious diseases. We're going to discuss four of them. And the format that I, this presentation is going to take is that I'm going to, you know, provide a definition, go through the pathophysiology, clinical features, diagnosis, as well as management pearls as it relates to these conditions. And uh, with each uh, condition, I'm going to start off with a, if a case or a patient scenario. So patient number one, we have a 20-year-old male college student who presents with a two-week history of fevers and fatigue, lives on a farm in Ohio, and has two cats and dogs. Vital signs are his uh, he's febrile, temperature of 100.7 Fahrenheit. His heart rate is 102 beats per minute. Respiratory rate is 18 breaths per minute, and he's uh, breathing on room air. On physical examination, you note um, findings significant for splenomegaly. He has no hepatomegaly or lymphadenopathy, and you also note that he has few petechiae. On his lab work, this is where it gets interesting. You notice his white cell count is low, 1.5. He's thrombocytopenic with a platelet count of 40. Hemoglobin as well as 8.5, so essentially a pancytopenic picture. ALT is elevated at 253, AST 44, and you do a monospot test that's also positive. And interestingly, his ferritin level is above 22,000. So what is the most appropriate next study to order? Is it A, EBV serology, B, malaria screen, C, an acute hepatitis panel, D, HIV screen, or E, soluble interleukin-2 receptor level? So I'll just give everyone a few seconds to just gather your thoughts and think about it. All right, so the correct answer for this question is soluble interleukin-2 receptor level. So we are going to be talking about hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Uh, this is a life-threatening uh, clinical syndrome. It's characterized by uh, essentially an extreme activation of the immune system. Now, there are two types. There's primary as well as secondary. Now, primary HLH is usually familial, and it's actually more common in the pediatric uh, population. Inherited defects in the cytolytic proteins are theorized to be um, the, the, the main contributory factor here. Now, secondary HLH, this is more common in the adult population. 
And um, some triggers include infections. In particular, of all the infections, the ABV is the most commonly associated trigger for um, HLH. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few slides from now. Um, also, more recently, actually, um, there are there have actually been some case reports that um, COVID-19 as well has been associated with HLH. And uh, malignancies as well can be con triggers or contributory factors such as AML, DLBCL, as well as uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And autoimmune conditions such as, SO, uh, such as lupus, as well as your inflammatory arthritis, uh, can also um, uh, give rise to secondary HLH. So what are the key components involved in, in HLH? I think the most important thing is uh, to first understand the roles that the macrophages, the natural killer cells, and our cytotoxic T lymphocytes um, play as it relates to immunity. So we'll start off with the macrophages. So these are the antigen-presenting cells. So that essentially, as the name states, they present foreign antigens to the lymphocytes. And macrophages are also able to phagocytose um, host cells. Natural killer cells, on the other hand, these eliminate damaged or infected host cells, example, the macrophages, usually in response to viral infection or malignancy. And the cytotoxic T lymphocytes almost have a similar function. So these are essentially activated T lymphocytes they will lyse autologous cells bearing uh, foreign antigens, example, for example, the macrophages. So I want everyone to keep these points in mind for the next slide. So activated macrophages are typically removed by the natural killer cells and your cytotoxic T lymphocytes, also called CTLs. So they do this uh, through something called perforin-dependent cytotoxicity. Now, as we said, you know, the, the way they work is that the natural killer cells and the, and the CTLs, they will basically lyse the target cells by forming what they call immune synapses. And they form holes or pore in the macrophage membranes, and then they deliver these cytoplasmic granules that contain proteases that enter into the macrophages and cause um, cell death. Now, as you can imagine, this is a very tedious process, and everything needs to go right or correct unless things go haywire. In HLH, you know, it's been proposed that there have been genetic defects in these perforin-mediated cytotoxicity or overstimulation of the immune system in the setting of a trigger, such as infectious processes, more commonly Epstein-Barr virus, or in the cases of malignancy. So in HLH, essentially, you, what you would have is an unrelenting or uncontrolled activation of your CTLs and your natural killer cells um, and these, this would lead to excess, uh, excess rather, um, cytokine secretion. And um, basically, you would have, like, you know, your release of your various interleukins, tumor necrosis factor, and interferon gamma. And these downstream would lead to myelosuppression, vascular endothelial damage, and multi-organ failure. Now, as you can see, with all of these, your immune system going haywire or being overactivated, it kind of resembles, you know, a patient in severe with severe septic or septic shock, where you have the myelos, you may see myelosuppression, um, vascular endothelial damage, as well as um, multi-organ failure. So that's why HLH is considered a great mimicker of infectious diseases. So what are some of the clinical manifestations? Um, so 
Classically, um, these patients develop a febrile illness with multi-organ involvement. So they also have lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, bleeding, as you can imagine, petechial rashes or purpura, jaundice, um, other things like cough or shortness of breath because they can develop an ARDS picture, especially with leak, uh, you know, leaky capillaries and, and, and affecting the alveoli, as well as uh, HLH can also affect the brain. So you, it can also give rise to uh, confusion. So how do we diagnose HLH? The first criteria um, developed to uh, diagnose HLH was actually uh, uh, discovered or came about in 1994. However, since then, there have been more updates. Um, so initially, there were just five components um, or, or five criteria, but now um, in 2004, they added three more, and now um, there's now a total of eight. So the, the main things that I want to draw to your attention on the table to the left is that um, the diagnosis of HLH can be made uh, once molecular diagnosis is consistent with HLH. This is your various molecular test. However, um, the next best thing is this diagnostic criteria. And essentially, um, as I stated, as, well, as I'm going to state now, you need five out of the eight criteria for the diagnosis of HLH. So these would be persistent fever, splenomegaly, cytopenias affecting um, at least two, at least two lineages of our peripheral blood, um, elevated triglyceride levels, low fibrinogen levels, um, as well as hemophagocytosis in the bone marrow or spleen or lymph nodes. Um, you want to rule out malignancy and uh, also lower absent um, natural killer cell activity as well is also required, um, a ferritin level of greater than 500, as well as a soluble interleukin-2 receptor level of greater than 2,400. And that was um, just basically circling back to the original patient that I presented. So another thing that I want to, you know, stress, even though, um, you know, with the name, in the name HLH, we're talking about hemophagocytosis. It's actually not pathognomonic for HLH. It can be seen in some other conditions. So you don't necessarily need to see hemophagocytosis on a bone marrow sample or in the spleen or lymph node sample um, to make the diagnosis, as long as you have at least five out of the eight criteria. You can make the diagnosis. So how do we manage HLH? So um, I know we are um, infectious disease doctors. Um, but I think the key thing here that I want to, you know, emphasize is that we have to, you know, first be internist and think broadly because we'll find ourselves in these scenarios where we are consulted for patients with fever and they don't necessarily have an infectious cause. So we will do our due diligence in doing, you know, co complete workup as it relates to infectious cause. But then afterwards, we have to start thinking outside of the box. So, of course, you want to rule out certain viral infections. Uh, such as EBV, CMV, parvovirus, um, HSV, VZV, as well as HIV as well, have also been associated with HLH. Um, but sometimes the presenting symptoms could just simply be due to the fact that the patient may have one of these viruses. Um, you also want to do, you know, bacterial and fungal infection workup, um, although these are less commonly associated with HLH. Malignancies as well have to be considered. Um, so, you want to make sure your patient has like age-appropriate um, cancer workup done or 
or um, you may want to, you know, start looking for other types of cancers. So the typical tests that we would do are your regular blood count, coagulation studies, liver function tests, fasting triglyceride levels, as well as ferritin levels. Um, as we know, the ferritin levels are usually markedly elevated in patients that have HLH. You would do your serum viral PCR tests, um, you know, to look for infectious triggers or other infectious causes that could be giving a similar clinical picture. You also have your soluble interleukin-2 receptor level as well as your uh, natural killer cell function levels. Um, but these are usually, I mean, these are not available in all labs and sometimes they're done at specialized centers. CSF analysis, interestingly, is also um, important. Um, in most studies, they've shown that in these patients that have HLH, um, they typically may have um, pleocytosis in about, and this has been noted in about 50% of patients on CSF analysis. And then you also have the possibility of doing your bone, well, bone marrow aspirate and biopsy, which, you know, which would typically be done in any event in persons that have um, severe pancytopenia as a means of further investigating. There's also some genetic testing, which I won't go into detail about this, but um, that can be done to help come up with a diagnosis. And then in terms of imaging studies, uh, you have a CT thorax, abdomen, or pelvis, which can be done to help um, uh, look for potential malignancies that may be on board. So in the management continued, basically, you want to treat potential triggers or associated illnesses. Um, you know, treatment is based on some studies that were done back in, you know, or, you know, based on the HLH um, patient group. And there's some guidelines from HLH 2004 studies. Typically, uh, the most common regimen for treatment is eight weeks of etoposide and dexamethasone. Um, you know, but uh, there may be situations in which actually allogenic um, hematopoietic um, cell transplant may actually be the, mains me the main means of cure, especially in those patients that have HLH gene mutations or whether they may have a hematologic malignancy, CNS involvement, or lack of response to your initial therapy. In these patient groups, this is where um, the allogenic uh, trans cell transplant has been deemed to be more beneficial. Okay, so patient number two. So you have a 27-year-old male who is uh, sexually active and uses condoms always. Uh, he presents with a complaint of recurrent oral and genital ulcers that are painful. So what is the most likely diagnosis? A, does this patient have uh, HIV? B, syphilis infection? C, Bechet's disease, D, herpes simplex virus, or E, a paraneoplastic uh, syndrome. So I'm just going to give everyone like 10 seconds to gather their thoughts before I reveal the answer. The answer for this question is Bechet's disease, and this is what we are going to be talking about next. So Bechet's disease is a vasculitic condition. Um, basically, there's multi-system involvement, and it, it more commonly manifests as mucocutaneous disease. Now, this uh, condition is actually more common in Turkey, where the prevalence is about 400 and, well, typically you may see about 420 cases per 100,000 population. 
Whereas here in the U.S., the prevalence is said to be anywhere around five per hundred thousand. The onset, its onset is typically in the third decade. Um, it's equally distributed between males and females as well. So in terms of the pathogenesis, in doing my research, you know, there really, I mean, one thing that I certainly found for, for this disease, as well as some of the other conditions that we're going to be talking about, the underlying cause causes are really unknown. And most of these are just like postulations or hypotheses. But um, it's basically in patients that have Bechet's disease, they have, you know, they found that patients with the HLA B51 are increased risk. And in this disorder, um, these patients typically have profound endothelial dysfunction. They also have um, autoantibodies that are formed against what they call oral mucosal antigens. And that's why you can see they may get these um, um, oral ulcers or, muc or mucosal lesions, as well as these patients may also have autoantibodies to what they call retinal S antigens. And this is responsible for them ha pa these patients having uh, uh, uveitis. Also, they've noted that, you know, it's a hypercoagulable state. It causes a hypercoagulable state. And so there's increased thrombin formation and decreased fibrinolysis. And um, it affects the vasculature accordingly. So what are some of the clinical manifestations? Um, the most common one that we need to know is that these patients have recurrent oral ulcerations. So whenever you hear about a patient having um, recurrent oral ulcerations, this is something that you really want to consider having the back of your mind, provided it's in the right clinical context. Again, you have to take into account where's the, where the patient is from or where they live, because all of that um, kind of helps hone in and making the diagnosis. Other things that are common are urogenital ulcerations. These are usually reported as painful, and they're actually the most specific lesions um, uh, seen in Bechet's disease. Um, other cutaneous lesions that patients may have may be described as papular, pustular, ecmiform, um, erythema nodosum, uh, pyoderma gangrenosum can also be seen, as well as erythema multiforme. Ocular lesions are also noted as well in patients that have Bechet's disease. Uh, typically, um, uh, these patients may develop uveitis, and it's usually bilateral. And as I mentioned earlier, it's thought that these patients um, have uh, autoantibodies to what they call the retinal S antigen, and um, that essentially uh, gives rise to um, uveitis or inflammation of the eye. In terms of the musculoskeletal system, it's a non-erosive asymmetric, it causes non-erosive asymmetric arthritis rather. Um, the CNS sometimes can also be involved. Um, so this was when I was doing my research, this was new to me. I did not know that was the case, but these patients can develop headaches as well as cranial nerve palsies. Vascular involvement is something that's also common, um, in particular aneurysm. And, um, and um, you know, in, uh, interestingly, these patients typically may develop uh, more so pulmonary aneurysms of the, of the pulmonary arteries, and this is, or pulmonary vasculature rather, seems to be more common in these patients. And they may also have um, vein, venothromboembolic events. The GI tract as well is not spared. Um, these patients can develop diarrhea, 
bleed, um, GI bleeds as well as abdominal pain. In terms of the diagnosis, there are no pathic mnemonic lab tests. Um, however, there have been different criteria that have de been developed over the years. So back in 1990, there's the we have the International Study Group Diagnostic Criteria. And um, more recently, in 2006, um, the inter International Criteria for Bechet's disease uh, was developed. So in the next slide, we're going to just uh, go over them a little bit. So um, I found this nice article um, that basically had these really nice tables, um, basically um, side to side comparing the different diagnostic criteria. So on the left, you have the International Study Group criteria from 1990. And on the right, you have the, the International Criteria for Bechet's disease that was developed in 2006. So for the International Study Group criteria, um, one thing that you definitely require are recurrent oral ulcerations plus any of the two of the following being recurrent genital ulceration, eye lesions, skin lesions, or um, a positive pathology test. On table two, sorry, on the right, however, um, the, the general scoring system is that any patient that has um, genital lesions or ocular lesions would get two points each for those. Um, those patients that have oral lesions or skin lesions, um, other than in the genital area, as well as vascular lesions or pathology, these will um, develop, uh, uh, these will, you know, basically get one point. So to make the diagnosis based on this criteria, you need three or more points. Um, so how is Bechet's disease managed? You know, there, there are few randomized control trials um, that uh, avoid that, that basically um, guide treatment rather. Um, the most important thing, it's dependent on organ system involvement and re recommendations are typically based on the European League Against Rheumatism. And uh, the mainstay of therapy is either colchicine or, or isothiopine and also topical or systemic corticosteroids, especially for your uh, uh, cutaneous uh, lesions. So for us as infectious disease doctors, again, we're not really involved in the treatment of this per se, but certainly if we're able to pick up this diagnosis um, based on a thorough history and physical examination and noticing that the patient fulfills certain criteria, then we would be able to appropriately manage the patient and uh, as well as refer them um, to um, the most appropriate specialty to address their management, which in this case would be uh, rheumatology typically. So patient number three. Uh, so we have a 20 year old female uh, originally from Turkey. She presents with a three day history of fevers also reports severe abdominal pain as well as joint pains. She says this is the fourth time she has had a similar episode this year. And earlier this year, interestingly, she had an appendectomy, uh, but the removed appendix, surprise, surprise, was normal. So her vital signs when you see her, temperature is 101 Fahrenheit, heart rate is 99 beats per minute, Respiratory rate is at 22 breaths per minute, and she's um, still able to breathe appropriately on room air. Uh, 
or rather oxygen status. On exam, you notice she's guarding significantly and she has um, generalized rebound tenderness. No rashes or joint swellings are noted. On her labs, her white cell count is 18, platelet count is 170, uh, hemoglobin is 14.5, or ALT is 15, AST is 40. On imaging, CT abdomen, pelvis, um, which is ordered, there are no acute findings. So what is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Is it A, systemic uh, lupus erythematosus, ulcerative colitis, infectious colitis, familial Mediterranean fever, E, or E, uh, pyelonephritis due to renal calculi? So I'll just give everyone a couple of seconds to gather their thoughts. So the answer is familial Mediterranean fever, also called FMF. So familial Mediterranean fever was actually first described in 1954. It's an autosomal recessive disorder. It's typically characterized by recurrent febrile um, polycerositis. Um, it mimics many common infections. So um, in particular, it, it comes about when you're thinking about patients with fever of unknown origin. And the unfortunate part is that diagnosis tends to be delayed. Um, it's more common in patients of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern descent. And um, actually by age 20, 90% of individuals would have typically presented um, with, uh, with symptoms. So in terms of the pathophysiology, um, you know, we're still learning a lot of things about, um, familial Mediterranean fever. Um, the gene, the MEFE gene that's responsible for FMF was only discovered in 1997. And, uh, they noted that these five mutations in the gene account for about 80% of causes or of uh, FMF. And um, basically what this gene does, it, it encodes for an inflammasome protein called pyrin. And uh, pyrin is, you know, found in many cells, but mainly in white blood cells. The main thing that I would say about pyrin, it helps keep inflammation under control. Um, by producing what they call these uh, chemotactic factor inactivator, um, basically leading to degradation of some of your complement factors, as is, dis as is uh, displayed on the diagram on the right, which was from the initial paper produced about um, FMF, FMF that was um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1997. So, you know, lack of normal pyrin protein um, basically would cause a full-scale inflammatory reaction, um, which would basically um, affect the serosal membranes. And this is what gives rise to these um, classic um, attacks of um, familial Mediterranean fever. And as you, you saw in the question, or in the, the question of the initial patient that I um, spoke about, the key things from that, from her, the patient's history, was that she was having repetitive episodes. And interestingly, you know, they're, with these repetitive episodes, they are confused with like other conditions like appendicitis. And as you can see, the patient there had had uh, appendectomy done unnecessarily. So in terms of the clinical manifestations, some of which I've already talked about, 
you have these unprovoked recurrent attacks of fever. And again, this all relates to the pathophysiology. You know, um, when you have the serosal areas affected, so you get this polycerositis picture um, that gives rise to pain. So you can have chest pain if you have pleuritis or carditis, abdominal pain if you have involvement of your intra-abdominal pelvic organs, as well as involvement of the synovial joints can lead to joint pains. These patients sometimes develop these erysipela-like lesions as well. Um, so they develop these rashes, although it's not that common. The acute episodes of pain or, or, or and fevers, they, you know, they typically last anywhere between one to three days. Um, in terms of how often they occur, it's very random, so to speak. So it can range anywhere from once every week to once every five to ten years. So how do we diagnose familial Mediterranean fever? Again, as if everything, you want to take a very thorough history and physical exam. In these patients, you may see an elevated white cell count, ESR, CRP, and fibrinogen. Um, and so again, you know, the clinical presentation, you know, with this severe abdominal pain, elevated white cell count, and these attacks of fevers, you know, your first instinct would be like, okay, this patient has an infectious disease. However, beware, FMF is a great mimicker of infectious diseases. Um, typically, your acute phase reactants, they will normalize between attacks. So that's something key to have in mind. Um, you can also do diagnostic molecular testing for the MEFV gene mutations, and this can also enable you in making a diagnosis or help you make a diagnosis. So in terms of the management, again, colchicine is the drug of choice um, for patients that have um, familial Mediterranean fever. Um, and how it works, I mean, typically we know that, you know, colchicine, you know, affects mitosis, um, but the mechanism of action in this case or this scenario in patients that have um, FMF is that it actually affects the motility of the neutrophils. Um, and, um, you know, uh, in, uh, in FMF, another theory or hypothesis they found is that, you know, you have a lot of recruitment of neutrophils at the areas that you have the serosal membranes or, or serosal lining. And so if you can affect the motility of the neutrophils, there probably will be less likely to reach those areas. And so, you can see how um, colchicine can be effective in terms of um, uh, curbing the symptoms. Uh, typically, this should be used um, in, indefinitely. So our last patient, patient number four. This is a 35-year-old female who presents with fevers, ongoing for about two weeks, associated with arthralgias, she also complains of a sore throat and notes a rash on her trunk and extremities when her fevers begin. In terms of her vital signs, her Tmax is 102 Fahrenheit, heart rate is at 100 beats per minute, respiratory rate is 18, and uh, she is uh, breathing appropriately on room air. On exam, you notice tonsillar erythema. She has axillary lymphadenopathy as well as splenomegaly. You also notice that your patient has bilateral wrist swelling. And interestingly, you come across this salmon-colored rash um, on both her legs. Lab-wise, 
Uh, her white cell count is 15, ferritin level is 2,500, AST is 100, and her ALT is 60. Oops. Well, I was supposed to ask what did you think was the diagnosis, but I, I, I jumped ahead. So the diagnosis is adult onset still disease. Adult onset still disease is a rare systemic inflammatory disorder. There's this classic triad of fever, arthralgia, and salmon-colored skin rash. So when you see this, or if you ever see this, you want to have adult onset still disease in the back of your mind. It has a prevalence of about 1.5 per 100,000. So again, it's a very rare disease. Um, and it has a bimodal age distribution between the 15 to 25 age group, as well as the 35 to 45 age group. It's more commonly, it more commonly affects um, females as well. So a little bit of the pathophysiology, again, there's a lot that's unknown regarding its development. There have been theories regarding interleukin-18 mediated macrophage and neutrophil activation uh, contributing to this um, condition, as well as um, more recently um, interleukin-1-beta, which is uh, responsible for neutrophil proliferation and diapedesis, has also been said to have a key role in the development of um, ASD. So what are some of the clinical manifestations? So in these patients, you can see daily, they may have uh, daily high spiking fevers and um, salmon colored rash typically seen on the trunk as well as the extremities. And the interesting is that this, uh, these rashes that they have are, are usually observed during the febrile episodes. And once the febrile episodes have subsided, the rash also subsides. Um, a sore throat as well is common. Arthralgias are common. Hepatospinomegaly as well can be seen in these patients. And they may also be complaining of chest pain or have pleurisy um, in the setting of um, pleuritis as well as uh, pericarditis. And the ones that I highlighted in yellow, again, these are the components of what's called the classic triad of adult onset still disease. So in terms of the diagnosis, there's a criteria called the Yamaguchi criteria, which is the main uh, criteria used to, these are the main criteria used to make a diagnosis. Um, it has a sensitivity of about 93.5%, and you have basically major and minor criteria. And how it works is that you need at least two of the major criteria meaning either fever um, going on for more than a week, arthralgia or arthritis for more than two weeks, the salmon-colored rash on the trunks or extremities, as well as your elevated white cell count. So you need two of those at minimum. In terms of the minor criteria, um, these include sore throat, lymphadenopathy, hepatomegaly or spinomegaly, abnormal liver function tests, and um, the patient also has to be negative uh, for rheumatoid factor or, and or ANA. Um, so you need a total of five, but again, out of those five, you need at least two major criteria to make the diagnosis. And it's highly sensitive, like I said, and it has a 93.5% sensitivity. So in terms of the management, again, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. 
The most common lab abnormalities include an elevated ESR, elevated ferritin levels, elevated uh, white cell count. Typically, the white cell count can between, be between 15 to 30,000. Uh, and also, you want to, you know, rule out other, you know, uh, viral causes. So you want to do your viral serologies as well as uh, serum PCR tests. So how do we manage um, adult onset still disease? Again, even though we as infectious disease doctors will not be the ones to predominantly manage patients with this condition, we still have to know about it. And if we ever encounter this situation, we can always help out our colleagues in terms of making appropriate referrals um, with respect to appropriately managing this condition. So corticosteroids are always first line. The goal is uh, as well um, that, you know, DMARDs are also important. Um, because they, you know, are steroid-sparing regimens. So methotrexate is a thioprine, as well as cyclophosphamide, cyclophosphamide rather, can be used for maintenance, ther maintenance therapy. Rather. Now, if refractory, uh, then the use of interleukin-1 antagonists can be considered. And this has just recently come about. As I mentioned before, they've only recently noted the role that interleukin-1-beta has in this condition. So um, if you can block it or antagonize it, um, this may help as well. But it's not definitely not first-line therapy. So in conclusion, um, I just wanted to leave with everyone a couple of buzzwords or key things about each of the conditions that I talked about. Um, I think this slide will be very helpful, um, you know, for future in terms of if you see a patient wherever you are in the world um, or wherever you are currently um, just to help um, you know gear your mind to other other um, conditions that may mimic infectious diseases so you have a patient with recurrent oral and genital ulcers have in the back of your mind Bechet's disease if you have a patient that has episodic fevers and abdominal pain you want to think about familial mediterranean fever in those patients that have um, a fever, high ferritin levels, recent viral infection, potentially um, like EBV, you want to think about HLH. Patients that have daily fever, salmon-colored rash or arthralgia, you want to think about adult onset still disease. And lastly, key thing here that I want to drive home not all fevers equate to infection. Thank you very much. And uh, if anyone Thanks. has any questions, feel free to ask. Yeah, this is John so Green. Much. I want to say thank you very much for an excellent presentation. And I love um, the whole concept of non-infectious causes of fever. And just a historical point, at Moffitt, HLH never existed in anyone's mind until the last five to ten years as an entity. And now all of those, the last 30 years, these mystery fevers, which we never knew what they were due to because nobody had a syndrome, in retrospect, many of them were due to HLH in the lymphoma patients, 
and uh, it was driven by their malignancy or EBV. So it, it, it's very timely discussion because they're discovering new entities that could explain a lot of the mysteries we had decades ago. And you uh, really highlighted the main ones. And I would point to the last three months is there's a new inflammatory FUO entity that was published in New England Journal of Medicine, which I have in my files, but not my brain. There's no name to it, or there may be, but it's a rare genetic problem where they had 15 to 20 people getting this CRS fever of unknown origin, and they all have the same kind of genetic findings. So uh, when you do have an FUO and you never know what it is and never prove it, just put it in the back of your mind that give science 5, 10, 20 years, and they may have a syndrome that is um, a little more common than you think. So thank you for bringing that out. Thank you very much, Dr. Green. Other questions? Zola, I had a question uh, while sure. we're, uh, we're all thinking about uh, questions to ask. Sure. Um, do you do we ever see any overlap with any of these syndromes where they um, they may present together? Um, in other words, more than one of these presenting at the same time. So it's not common, but there have been some, you know, there have been some reports and especially there may be some overlaps between um, adult onset disease, adult onset, adult onset stills disease rather, as well as with HLH. Um, but it's it's not very it's not very common. But certainly there are lots of features um, that sort of, you know, sort of overlap, especially in, you know, some of the lab tests as well with ferritin levels uh, being elevated. Um, but um, just the HLH and the adult onset still disease is the one that I've found that there appears to be some degree of overlap. Yeah. Other questions? I would say um, the entities you say are extremely rare so that not that that's a bad thing. I'm just going to tell you and you can ask other people in the audience. But in my lifetime of 30, 40 years of medicine, I've seen three cases of Bechet's no familial Mediterranean fever. And now with the new entity, probably 50 cases of HLH and no cases of Stills disease. So uh, that's how rare these are, but maybe someone in the audience can claim they saw one of the other entities. I remember seeing a case of Stills disease as an FUO years ago, I think when I was a fellow, but I agree. I mean, it's very rare, but maybe we're just underlooking for these syndromes, particularly HLH in a non you know, immunocompromised uh, malignancy population where, um, you know, maybe we're just overlooking them. Yeah. So actually, quite interestingly, like uh, just this past, uh, well, in January, actually, um, when I when I was on one of the main services, um, we actually had a patient that um, we were following that turned out that they met the criteria for HLH. 
and um, and you know the initial the actual the initial presenting symptoms were just like fevers, and they also had recently had a um, a positive monospot test, um, but they certainly met the criteria for HLH, and they had the, the bone marrow biopsy was also consistent with it. So um, I I can say I definitely saw a ca- at least a case of HLH, but. Yeah, the other conditions are indeed um, they're very they're very rare. But again, you know, we have to take into account are we um, underdiagnosing these patients? Or I think the key point is just to have them in the back of your mind. We never know where we may practice um, or where our patients may come from. So if they fit the appropriate um, you know clinical history um, or, or demographic, then certainly it's these are things that we can work them up for. And my last point is famous words from John Sinnott that I heard as a med student, which is, we only recognize those things we know about. So you now have given us things to know about so we can actually recognize it because who knows how many we've missed. So thank you for this topic. Thank you very much again, Dr. Any other comments or questions from the group? Dr. Montero, I, I know you're a, uh, a a very seasoned clinician. Have you ever seen any of these presenting in your years at Tampa General? I don't know if you have a microphone and can comment. I, I do have a mic. Uh, I'm the opposite of what Dr. Green. I, I have not seen familial Mediterranean fever. At least I've not recognized it. I've seen w- one suspected and one, I think, true Stills disease. Um, but I, I've not been able to at least identify a familial Mediterranean fever case. And you're right, Dr. Green, HLH has become uh, much more in vogue as far as diagnosis. And a decade ago, we, we didn't know what it was. I don't think it was named. Thank you, Dr. Montero. Any other questions or comments? I did see one case of an adult onset stills. It was in a, a gentleman who was a mercenary who had been all over the world in countries in different conflicts who came in as an FUO. You can imagine what kind of workup that that was. But it ended up that, you know, yeah, he had this kind of a typical looking rash. And they actually didn't believe me when I put it in the differential on the uh, ID consult. So they had Frank Vasey from Room come in who diagnosed it and uh, got the guy treated. But it was just totally bizarre in a mercenary soldier with worldwide travel. I mean, you have no idea what he's got. Oh, interesting. Any other comments or questions? Thank you, Dr. Tony. If not, um, I wanted to thank uh, uh, Zola for this fantastic presentation. Uh, uh, it's always nice to learn new things that we haven't considered. And, uh, and so um, thank you all for listening, and, and we'll go ahead and conclude, and we will see you all next time. Uh, all right. thanks, thanks again. Good night, thank everybody. You. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thank you.